This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. It's traditional during the beginning of a new year to take stock and explore spiritual motivations. Our program takes that tack this week with discussions of indigenous spirituality in Mexico and Guatemala. But first, Gabriela Conchola is here with the latest about Cuba and the rest of our weekly review of news from around Latin America. More historic shifts between the U.S. and Cuba. As of today, the United States is easing travel restrictions and trade barriers. Although it is not a formal lifting of the travel ban imposed by the U.S., the new restrictions will mean travelers from the U.S. will no longer need special permission to visit Cuba. The change also means tourists from the U.S. can officially spend money in Cuba. Murray Harf, a spokesperson for the U.S. State Department, says the changes are just one of the first steps. There are a series of milestones that, ha- that will have to be a part of this moving forward, and one of those was the prisoners being released. Um, one of them uh, was announcing the new regulations. One of them will be this first set of normalization talks, and then we'll keep hitting milestones as we go. Earlier this week, the Cuban government released all 53 political prisoners that it had promised to set free as part of the change in relations. Despite the release of political prisoners, conservative critics remain unhappy. Those critics say the trade and travel changes only support the authoritarian government led by Raúl Castro. Another historic shift, this time in Colombia. President Juan Manuel Santos announced this week he is willing to open ceasefire talks with the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the rebel group known as the FARC. Many in Colombia are hopeful that if the government agrees to a ceasefire, it could mark the closing stage of a war that has ground on for about 51 years. The government and the rebels have negotiated for the past two years in an attempt at a peace treaty, and those talks are entering their final stages. The FARC is one of two rebel groups in Colombia, but it is the larger and more powerful group. More than 220,000 people have died in the country's civil war. Guatemala's civil war ended 19 years ago, but one of its starkest chapters is being replayed in a courtroom. Former dictator Efraín Ríos Montt is being retried on charges that he ordered mass killings of indigenous civilians in the 1980s. A judge found Ríos Montt guilty of those charges two years ago, but Guatemala's constitutional court overturned the verdict and put off any retrial until this year. The former dictator is now 88 years old and has been too sick to attend court this week, further delaying the process. Rios Montt is the first former head of state to face genocide charges in his own country. Argentina's Wild Tales made the cut this year in the race for the Oscars. Wild Tales is one of five films in the race for Best Foreign Language Film, and the nominations released this week by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences in the U.S. Damien Zeffren directed the film, which now has the highest box office record in Argentina. The film was co-produced by legendary Spanish filmmaker Pedro Almodovar. 
Wild Tales is the only film from Latin America in the competition, and it will compete against entries from Russia, Estonia, Mauritania, and Poland. For Latin Pulse, I'm Gabriela Canchola. Thanks, Gabriela. In the fall of last year, we visited with David Friedel of Washington University here in St. Louis. Friedel is the co-author of Maya Cosmos and is one of the leading archaeologists working in the realm of Mayan spirituality. We visited with him in his office where he discussed his research in northern Guatemala. Here's the second part of our interview. Right now, I'm working in uh, northwestern Paten, Guatemala, about 70 kilometers as the crow flies uh, west of the great city of Tikal. And Waka is up on a high ridge. It's an important garrison town and was a very important trade town in antiquity and very integral to the politics of the classic Maya world. In the middle of the city is a beautiful temple. It's not beautiful anymore because it's in ruin, but it faced west. It was dedicated to uh, the, the moon goddess, to a great war god, a dangerous war god, and to the sun god. And uh, this temple has in it a fire shrine, a beautiful, large, square hearth, massive hearth inside of a room in the mountain that doesn't have any roof, so the flames could go right up. This fire shrine is a special way of celebrating the turning of the year from the dry season to the rainy season, because once you have planted your fields in the ash that you have created from cutting down brush and firing it, you pray for rain, and then the rain will come and sustain and nourish the crops so the corn, beans, and squash and other things that you have planted will grow and you will live. If the rains don't come, then you're in very serious trouble. There are ways to survive, but it's very difficult. So you need the rains to come after you've prepared and planted the fields. So I think the fire shrine was probably used very much in association with this agricultural rite of preparing the world for the coming of the rains. And the moon is a rainy uh, goddess, a goddess of water and rain. Um, there's a fiery sun, but there's also a rainy season sun. The dawn sun comes from the east with the rains. So the ancient Maya had very clear ideas about how these gods would collaborate with human beings to bring about the miracle of the resurrection of maize out of the earth. It wasn't just human beings that had to sustain and nurture the world. The gods had to participate. So in this shrine, we discovered this enormous fire hearth. And Olivia Navarro Farr of College of Worcester, Ohio, uh, was excavating and was responsible for this with her Guatemalan colleagues, expert archaeologists, and with our Kekchi Maya workers. And we have worked with them now for 12 years, so we know them very well. And they are devout Catholics, uh, either traditional Catholics that practice a combination of religions, or Catholics that hew very closely to doctrine as provided by the church. They're two different churches. But this group of men, we asked them, please bring us a holy man, a shaman, who can come and preside over a ceremony of thanks uh, for our very good fortune in discovering this building's wonderful hearth this year. So that wonderful old man came with his wife, 
because no good ceremony could be done without both the man and the woman present for them, the male and the female represented there. And he laid out a fire hearth on the center line axis of the building to the west of it. And in the hearth, he uh, laid out white earth to purify it. And then he gave us all, about 20 people, uh, workers and archeologists, white candles because this was a blessing event. So only white candles. We had copal incense, uh, the sap of trees that is extremely fragrant. It's like frankincense, but even more sweetly fragrant. And we burned offerings in the fire hearth, and we knelt and we prayed, and he prayed, and his wife prayed, and we took all of our candles, which were all lit, and we placed them carefully inside of the ring of this fire hearth where they could also be consumed eventually. And we did this wonderful quiet ceremony as the sun was setting through the trees and shining down on the fire hearth so that that was right on the fire hearth up on top of this pyramid as we were making this ceremony. And then afterwards, Olivia, who speaks absolutely impeccable Spanish, uh, invited the shaman and his wife up to see the fire shrine. So they went up and looked at this hearth and they were completely unsurprised. It was like, of course, of course, that's what they would have here. That's what we would find here. So my experience of working with Maya people is they're intensely curious about the past. They want to know what happened. They want uh, to be able to think about how ancestral people, ancestral heritage might uh, figure into their lives. And this is now becoming true virtually everywhere that I see Maya people in Paten, in the highlands of Guatemala, um, in Yucatan, in Belize, everywhere, the Maya people are increasingly engaged in understanding this. And now there are actual Maya archaeologists, archaeologists who are of Maya heritage. I am now working in collaboration with a really remarkable archaeoastronomer named Susan Milbrath of uh, University of Florida Gainesville. Uh, we're contemplating uh, writing a paper together on a topic of great interest to me, which is this building. Um, the building in antiquity was called Witena in Maya, which means a literally a root tree house but it, it means the fire shrine, but it also means the origin place. And the Witena concept came into the Maya world at our site for the first time. In 416 AD, a stele was dedicated that talked about an event January uh, 6th of 378 AD. And on that date, uh, a great lord arrived at Waka and put a new government in order and he carried out a ceremony in the Witena, in the Wite's base. And this lord then went about establishing new governments at Tikal, probably Copan, Behukal. Uh, he was very famous. His name was Fireborn Siakak. And Siakak um, was not a Maya. He was a foreigner, probably from Highland Mexico from the city of Teotihuacan, 800 kilometers to the west of us. The Teotihuacanos were collaborating with some 
ancient Maya kingdoms in this area. Waka was one of them. I don't think this was bloody tyranny that was being imposed upon the people. I think this is a liberator coming and renewing kingship in these places where the kings had been overthrown by enemies coming down from the north. If I'm right about that, then uh, the Witena concept was first established at our site in the context of this fire shrine, which is why it's the only one that we have. There isn't another building that has such a monumental fire hearth in it anywhere in the classic Maya world, anywhere. And the building is designed as a Teotihuacan-style building. So it's, it's promising as an hypothesis that this is the Witena building that he established, and we're digging deeper and deeper in tunnels in the building to find it. But uh, I am now convinced that the gods of the city uh, included a god a goddess who was brought from Mexico, the moon goddess. Now the Maya have a moon goddess, her name is Ischel. Uh, but the goddess that is brought from Mexico has a special name at our site. Her name is Three Moon. And I'm pretty well convinced, and Susan Milbrath thinks I'm probably right, that this is the name of the goddess that represents the great pyramid of the moon at Teotihuacan which is in fact an effigy of a pyramid there called El, uh, um, Cerro Gordo, which is a, an extinct volcano. The moon pyramid at Teotihuacan is dedicated to a goddess. The moon pyramid at Teotihuacan has also got a, a fire component to it uh, because the goddess can be represented as an effigy fire sensor with water pouring out of her womb like the springs at the base of Cerro Gordo and the name of the goddess is given on her girdle above this water flow and it is an inverted u-shaped um, element which is a crescent moon in the rainy season of highland mexico when the rainy season emerges that sliver of moon when it first shows up on the horizon is inverted and the rains come and in addition there is a beautiful set of three stars in a row that everybody in the world knows as the belt stars of Orion in our culture. But those three stars represent a great turtle among the Maya, and it's the mother world out of which the maize plant will crack. So it represents the world out of which maize resurrects. So I think that uh, inline triad of dots, which occurs all over Teotihuacan, with this uh, inverted U-shaped element they call the mustache, but I think is representative of the crescent moon, that that represents the name Three Moon. So that when the Maya wrote it in their hieroglyphics, that's how they wrote it, as Three Moon, as a translation of the Mexican name. Well, this is an audacious hypothesis. No one's ever tried to discover, first of all, the name of this goddess, and the importance of it would be enormous. So like Catholicism syncretizing with Maya religion in the 16th century, I think Mexican religion syncretized importantly with Maya religion in the 4th, 5th century and stayed syncretized thereafter. So they never unsyncretized it. If I'm right, it's going to be a way of opening a window, just a little crack, into the world of Teotihuacan, which we only have beautiful mural paintings for, we don't have writing. But if we can get to a name of one of their principal deities uh, that we've never named before, I'll be really thrilled. Thank you so much. Professor David Friedel 
of Washington University in St. Louis, the co-author of Maya Cosmos, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Rick. Coming up, a discussion of spirituality in Mexico, the view from the modern-day Aztecs. Stay with us. This planet we call Earth, abundant with new food, new cures, new life, an amazing place. Please don't let it vanish without a trace. Call for your free World Wildlife Fund Action Kit with 10 simple things you can do to help leave our children a living planet. Call 1-800-C-A-L-L-W-W-F. Welcome back to Latin Pulse and our discussion this week of indigenous spirituality. We reached out to anthropologist Tim Nabb of the Universidad de las Americas, the University of the Americas in Puebla, Mexico. Nab is the author of several books on spiritual concepts, including A War of Witches, Dialogue of Earth and Sky, and his latest, Mad Jesus. We spoke to him via Skype in Puebla. There are over 500 fiestas a year here in Cholula. In the Sierra Norte, people still believe in the old Aztec underworld, but that's not the only place that exists. It exists in the uh, Sierra Negra, it exists in the Zongalica Forest. Uh, it's a widespread series of beliefs that um, the underworld, the world of the ancestors, exists just like the world on the surface of the earth. And that one, when one dies, one enters into the underworld with the rest of all their ancestors. It's a very profound ancestral cult. And it's all over Mexico. It's not just Mexico. It's Guatemala, too. When you talk to Quiches, Quichechajos, uh, the shamans, um, they have the same reverence for their ancestors. And it's the same thing also that goes on with Day of the Dead here. Because Day of the Dead isn't just for all of the dead. It's for your particular ancestors. It's a cult that, yeah, you can trace back to pre-Columbian times, but it's a living tradition today as Day of the Dead is anywhere in Mexico. I'm trying to explore this issue of how indigenous religion is practiced today in Mexico. Is it something that you feel is present in everyday life? It's something that's present everywhere, not just in indigenous communities. Uh, in indigenous communities, Nahuatl communities in the Sierra Norte Puebla, the Sierra Negra, the Zongalica Forest, there's still an active belief in the ancient Aztec underworld, Talocan. It's a world just like ours within the earth. It's where the ancestors live. There is Mexico City in Talocan. There is Paris in Talocan. Uh, it has a specific form and structure that people uh, know and talk about. It's the world of the ancestors. But it's not just in indigenous communities where the ancestors and the world of the ancestors is important. Everywhere you go all over Mexico, Day of the Dead, is a celebration of, an, of individual families' ancestors in this sense. It's like a friend of mine here in San Andres Cholula says, here, you know what? We all work for the ancestors. We honor their traditions, and everything we do reflects uh, our traditions and our ancestors' traditions. 
it's it it sounds to me like it's it's not just religion, but it's just also tradition and family tradition. This is woven into Catholicism. You've got to understand, indigenous Catholicism and Orthodox Catholicism are two different things. Um, you ask people about their saints around here and the virgins, they talk about them as real people. Because if you go up to the top of the pyramid, to the shrine of the Virgin of the Remedies, most days you'll find somebody sitting in there talking to the Virgin, telling him, oh, you don't know what my son-in-law did. Oh, he was drunk again. Please help me, Virgin. This is a part of everyday life here. They have a direct and personal relationship with uh, the saints, the uh, images, um, that are part of the social texture of Cholula. So it it almost sounds like a, a, a Skype call to the to the afterlife or or a telephone call that these folks are having. Oh, it's not at all unusual to walk into a church and see some uh, one sitting in front of a saint's image and just talking to them. It's a very real and personal attitude that people have toward religion. Are there people who are practicing not? indigenous Catholicism, but just a form of uh, indigenous practice, the type of um, modern-day religion that Aztecs practiced 500 years ago? No, it's all combined. You've got to understand that um, with the conquest, Mexico lost, uh, depending on where you were, between 80 and 90 percent of its population. Mexico didn't achieved the same level of population as a nation until 1938. So what that did was it absolutely devastated native religions. And Catholicism was wholeheartedly adapted uh, to that. But it was based on models and uh, uh, relationships that were pre-Columbian. It wasn't just taking... um, Coatlicue and calling her the Virgin of the Remedies. Uh, It was a much more profound set of changes where the Virgin of the Remedies, yes, does have some of the abilities and features of Coatlicue. She brings the rain. She marries off um, uh, old maids. uh, She brings women children uh, and things like that. But She's still the Virgin of the Remedies, not Coatlicue hiding under the Virgin of the Remedies. That's unfortunately what most people see in syncretism. And people here in Cholula don't see that. This is the Virgin of the Remedies, but yes, she may have some features that are part of the tradition of Mesoamerica. So in some of your work, you also talk about this additional layer that exists, I think, fair to say, outside of Catholicism. The spiritual leaders who um, are part of these indigenous traditions who are more than just storytellers, but but also are um, keepers of, of the ancient ways. Oh, yes. There are quite a number of people. But their traditions are all intertwined with the post-conquest Catholic traditions. 
the idea is that the saints live in the sky and their images are all placed on people's altars above the altar, whereas the ancestors live in the underworld. And underneath the altar um, are trunks with clothing, hair, etc., from all of their different ancestors. So they separate these things. And they're, they're storytellers, they're shamans, they're curanderos, uh, who still to this day use the traditional religion, but they're also, they consider themselves very good Catholics. Tell me a little bit about the relationship between the everyday Mexican and um, the folks that you would characterize as curanderos. Uh, Okay, curanderos are basically specialists in uh, the supernatural and the traditions in this sense. Uh, they have thought this out. They have reasoned out their relationship with their traditions and the underworld uh, far more than most people in everyday life. And you've got to understand, a curandero works not just on a physiological level. He works on a social, religious, uh, political, economic level to resolve a person's problems. That's how you cure someone. This sounds to me a, a little bit like um, an earlier version of, of, of what we take for granted in the West of, uh, um, of therapists, counselors, psychotherapists. Yeah, basically um, several people, including Eric Fromm, have called curanderos the... Uh, psychologists of the people and but they do much more than just psychological treatment i still practice as a curandero uh i do curings for people here in cholula not many these days but i still practice and i still use the system of dream analysis that they can project upon and it gives me great insights into what's bothering people, what their problems are, why they're having problems in their life with their relatives, with their friends, what's going on. And then what you do as a corandero is you try to help them resolve those problems. Once they resolve those problems, it usually also helps to resolve their physiological problems. I'm, I'm the weirdest corandero around here. <laughs> When Doña Berta calls me in, she explains to people, even though he's a gringo, he's a corandero too. <laughs> and part of part of the job is usually most of my clients get a full physical from my friends who are MDs. I want to make sure that there's no organic uh, problem that they have that can be quickly cured with antibiotics because a corandero can't compete with antibiotics. They work, uh, and that's pretty much definitive. But usually what you do with people like this, one of the first things you do is you administer something like a strong episote tea, which is a vermifuge. Uh, everybody has problems with uh, parasites. Once you get rid of that, people start getting better. They get healthier. There are a whole load of things you try to get people to do 
to eat better, to sleep better, to exercise. And it all helps them as well as helping them on a psychological level, on a social level. They may have conflicts with people around them. Uh, sometimes on an economic level, I've helped, you have no idea how many people get jobs. And getting a job does a huge amount for someone in desperate poverty to solve their problems. Thank you very much. Our guest today, anthropologist Tim Nabb of the Universidad de las Americas, the University of the Americas in Puebla, Mexico. Thank you for being on Latin Pulse. Okay, you're more than welcome. We'll hear more from that interview with Tim Nabb later this year. That concludes our program on indigenous religions. Indigenous music for this week's program comes via Smithsonian Folkways. If you're looking for earlier editions of our program, Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Mini Mundos. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, producer Jim Singer and production assistant Gabriela Canchola. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>